Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody again. As I said earlier, if you're visiting with us here uh, tonight, this is part three of a of a five-part series I'm doing on uh, called "It's About Time," and what we're doing is looking at um, future events and we're looking at timing of events. And so, um, really, I'm, I've made this point now a couple of times. But really, the big issue when you look at uh, eschatology or the study of Bible prophecy is really the timing of events. And uh, to really understand eschatology or Bible prophecy, there's kind of three main issues really that you have to kind of land somewhere on these three issues that kind of determine where you are in your eschatology or your view of end times. And uh, we said that you kind of have a main view. There's kind of five main categories. I'll, I'll mention those here in a moment. Uh, that you kind of fall in. Then there's your, your view of the timing of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And then there's your view of the timing of the rapture. Now, the rapture happens, I believe, be- far before the millennium, but I put it last because it's the, one of the issues that have the least number of passages that deal with it. So kind of in order of importance, I guess maybe you'd say, you've got your main category, then your view of the millennium, then your view of the rapture of the timing. Um, I like to do studies like this, and we're going to try to do some more of these. Maybe uh, next uh, uh, year, up to the first year, I've thought about doing a series maybe on church history. Um, I remember when I was at Dallas Seminary, one of my professors said that uh, Lewis Perry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, said that every church should be a, a miniature Bible college. And I think that's true in many ways. And it doesn't mean that every service we have, that it's just, you know, in-depth, detailed teaching on certain topics. But certainly at times we need that in the church because we need to have our minds challenged. I think within churches today, the Bible is being taught less and less, and people are being challenged less and less to think and uh, to understand how to interpret the Bible and kind of what different views are in categories theologically. So, um, I don't want that to be true here at our church. I want people here, I want us to, to uh, know these truths. And I know all the things we're talking about here. Not everybody's going to go out here and remember all these things. But my experience has been growing up in the church, I, I'd hear something kind of the first time, and maybe you know, I kind of grasped a few things about it. Then I'd hear about it again. It was kind of like putting another coat of paint over it, and then I'd hear it again. And so you, you kind of build your, your, your theology in these different areas over time as you kind of hear different parts of truth. I'm kind of maybe from different angles over over a period of time. So um, that's what we're doing here in this study. And tonight I want to finish on the millennium. And then the next two weeks we're going to look at uh, the timing of the rapture, uh, what we believe about that. So let me just give a little review. I know some of you weren't here last time. So um, there's these main interpretations of the book of Revelation, but really just it's kind of your overall approach to prophetic passages. And we said that there's four main views, and then there's a fifth one called eclecticism that kind of mixes them all together. But preterists believe, the, the word preterist is from the Latin word preter, which means past. So preterists believe that most or all of the prophecies in the New Testament were fulfilled in and around A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Some of them believe that there's still some future prophecies. Other preterists, called full preterists, believe it's all been fulfilled. And that we're in the new heaven and the new earth now. It's like I said before, that's depressing. Um, but that's the preterist view. And uh, preterism, again, if you get online, there are literally thousands. There must be thousands of preterist websites out there. Um, it's a view that's really gained in popularity um, over time. So um, a lot of preterists out there. Then there's historicists who believe that 
but prophecies being fulfilled between the first and second coming of Jesus, that what we have is kind of, a, and, and especially in the book of Revelation, is a panorama of this age. And we said the main weakness of that view is that people just tend to interpret the prophecies then in their time, and there's really no consistent interpretation of what these things mean. It's just it's kind of a floating, moving target. Um, the, uh, the reformers were historicists, Martin Luther, uh, Calvin and others, it, it gained a lot of popularity during that time. Not as many historicists today. Um, the idealist view, again, I've said, is probably the main view out there among scholars. It's that there's really no historical fulfillment of many of these prophecies, especially the ones in Revelation. It's just really a prophecy of the ongoing, ongoing battle between the church and the world, between the, the, the two comings of Jesus. So you're not looking for real historical fulfillment or concrete fulfillment of these events. The problem with that is, as I said before, it, it really goes against Jesus' own interpretation in the book of Revelation where he points to several things in chapter 1, and he gives those symbols a concrete meaning, or in other words, they have a referent or whatever they refer to as literal. So I think it betrays Jesus' own key, if you will, to how you interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. So the view that I hold, the view that we teach here at Faith Bible Church is futurism, and that is that many of these prophecies in the New Testament are yet to be fulfilled, and in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and following are future. So they refer to literal, literal people, literal events that will take place, um, future even to our day. And so, again, when you think about just your overall view of eschatology or end times, you have to pick one of these kind of categories that's going to be your grid through which you see things. And so the view that I take is called, again, the futurist view. And I think, I think it's the only view where you can have a consistent, literal interpretation of these prophecies and, and be consistent in that. So that's why, uh, why I hold that view. Now, we started last time looking at the millennium, and I'm not going to go back and repeat what we said last time, but the millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Millennium is the Latin word for a thousand years. Um, I call Revelation 20, where that's mentioned, uh, Satan's chain, the Savior's reign. I mentioned how Dr. Dwight Pentecost at Dallas Seminary said a larger body of prophetic scriptures devoted to the subject of the millennium, developing its character and conditions than any one subject. Now, if that's even close to being true, then, you know, talking about the millennium is not just kind of some pie in the sky, you know, kind of uh, small issue out there. It's an important issue for us to understand it. it a lot of passages um, reflect upon this, this issue. Now, we said there's three main views of the millennium, the amillennial view, the millennium is being realized today, the thousand years is not literal, we're in the kingdom or the millennium now, the postmillennial view says Jesus will come back post or the end of the millennium because the millennium will be established on earth through the preaching of the gospel. The world will become Christianized. And the premillennial view says Jesus will come back pre or before the millennium and he'll establish it on the earth. So the millennium is anticipated. It's a literal thousand year reign. So amillennialists say it's, gonna, it's realized now. Postmillennialists say it's achievable here on earth. And premillennialists say it's anticipated. And I made the point last time that everybody in all three of these views, all evangelical Christians, we all agree that Jesus is the king and that he reigns. What we disagree on is when he'll reign and the nature of his reign and the place where he'll reign. And so what we did is we looked at these three views. And again, I'm, I'm going to put this PowerPoint online so you can go look at this. 
um, the amillennial view, the postmillennial view, and uh, the premillennial view. And we started looking at the reasons uh, why um, I hold to premillennialism. Now, I remember re- years ago reading a story about uh, P.T. Barnum, uh, the famous circus showman. And uh, he loved to show preachers his exhibit called The Happy Family in which lions and tigers and panthers squatted around a lamb without any aggression. And when visiting preachers would ask Barnum if the group ever had any trouble, he would say, apart from replenishing the lamb now and then, they get along very well together. And of course, the Bible says in Isaiah 11, you know, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb, the leopard is going to lie down with the kid. And so, you know, when people say we're in the millennium now, you know, the old joke is, well, you know, put a wolf and a lamb together and see how that goes. So, um, yeah, I don't believe we're in the millennium now. This world is not what it's supposed to be. It's not what God created it to be, but someday um, that's what it will be. And I, I take these promises in the Old Testament literally. So we looked last time at the promises of God in the Old Testament that I believe have to be literally fulfilled as they were understood by the authors of the Old Testament. We can't come in the New Testament and change the meaning of Old Testament prophecy. So we looked at those Old Testament covenants and uh, a few passages in the New Testament. Now, what I want to, and by the way, my, I've got six arguments here why I'm, why I'm a premillennialist, and it's an acronym that spells out pre-mill. So the P, the first P there is promises of God. Now the R is the resurrection in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. So if you have your Bible and want to turn there, this is going to be the most complicated of the arguments. So if, if you're, we're not, it's going to get easier after this one. But I want to point this out to you because what we have here in Revelation 19 and 20, um, and again, if you've looked at this at all uh, before, in chapter 19, I believe, we have the second coming of Jesus. You know, verse 11, saw the heaven opened a white horse. He who sat upon it is faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and wages war. He comes back to the earth. He defeats the armies that are gathered there. He throws uh, the beast or the antichrist and the false prophet alive into the lake of fire. And then it says in verse 20, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who did not worship the beast or his image and did not receive the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. Again, if you've been reading the book of Revelation up to this point, again, if you're a futurist, you take this to be a future time when the beast, uh, the, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist will be ruling and people have to take this mark and if they don't take it, they're killed. And it says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come into life until the thousand years were completed. And then referring back to the end of verse 4, he says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Then verse 7, when the thousand years are completed. So six times you have reference here uh, to a thousand years. Now, there's an issue here of 
in verse 4, it refers to these people who've been beheaded here and, and uh, you know, suffered during this, uh, the reign of, of this Antichrist, I believe. It says, and they came to life when they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, everybody agrees that if this coming to life here refers to the physical resurrection, then this has to be referring to uh, the future, to the second coming of Jesus. Because everybody believes there's gonna, that's when the resurrection is going to happen. So if you're an amillennialist, see what, what amillennialists believe. They, they take chapter 19 as being the second coming, at least most of them do. And then they think in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we're going back to the first coming of Jesus, and it's talking about the thousand years that we're living in now, which is the kingdom, which is just a long period of time. And that when you go down to verse 7, 8, and 9, that you pick back up with the second coming again. So they don't see it as flowing. You know, the second coming happens, and then you have the millennium, and then you have this revolt of Satan, and then you have the new heaven and new earth, and, and then uh, the, the uh, uh, heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. They think you have the second coming, and then it recapitulates back to the first coming of Jesus, and that it's describing this current age in verses 1 to 6, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ of the millennium. In other words, it's happening now. But to make that happen, when it says they came to life, that can't be a reference to the resurrection at the end, because if that's true, then you have to put this at the end, and it can't be referring to this age. So they take the words at the end of verse 4, they came to life as referring to spiritual uh, life, being converted, or of people who've died during this age living spiritually in heaven. And they take the, the resurrection here also to be um, spiritual. Now, a couple things about that. The word resurrection is used twice here. You'll see it in verse 5 and in verse 6. Now, the Greek word for resurrection is the word anastasis. And it appears 42 times in the New Testament, and 39 of those times it clearly refers to the resurrection of the body. Now, two of the other times it's used are right here. So I'll leave one other one that in the book of Luke that could possibly not refer to physical resurrection. So that's kind of a big hurdle to overcome, you know, when you got a word used, you know, 42 times and at least 40, you know, the other 39 besides here are clear references with possibly one exception to, to bodily resurrection. And then you have the word here, um, it's the, the word that's used here in the Greek is ezezen, but it's from the, the verb zao, which means to live or to come to life. And Almost always that word refers to coming to life physically as well, a physical resurrection. But again, amillennialists and postmillennialists have to take the coming to life here and the resurrection to be spiritual rather than physical, because again, if it's physical, this is the end of the age, and it doesn't fit with their, their framework. Now, the problem with taking came to life here um, in verse 4 making that uh, refer to, to some kind of spiritual life, is notice in verse 4 right before this, he's been talking about people who died physically, right? They've been, had their, you know, they've been beheaded, uh, they've been killed for the Word of God, and it says, and they came to life. Well, if you've just talked about people dying physically, and then you say they came to life, it makes sense to me to be talking about them coming to life physically. 
So you just talk about them dying physically, they came to life physically. Seems to me that that would be consistent. So they lost their physical lives. It makes sense they come to life physically. Also, even um, even um, amillennialists and postmillennialists, they agree that when you come down to uh, verse 5, the rest of the dead didn't come to life till the thousand years were completed. Now, they take that coming to life to be referring to the resurrection at the end of the age. So, you got, they came to life, and just a few words later, you got come to life again. They take one of them to be spiritual and one of them to be physical. Now, it's been pointed out by many people that when you have a word used that close together and they're not clearly distinguished from one another, they're going to mean the same thing. And that's a big problem for amillennialists here to overcome. And so I take, these are, it's talking about people who die during the tribulation. They come to life physically. They're resurrected. And they reign with Christ a thousand years in the future. And the rest of the dead didn't come to life. That's going to be a physical resurrection until the thousand years are completed. That's the lost people that will come to life at the end of the millennial kingdom and be judged at the great white throne, which is the next thing he talks about. So the whole issue of, of this coming to life and this resurrection here, if it's physical resurrection, then it has to be, then, then the premillennial view has to be correct. And again, when you got a word that's used, you know, 42 times, 39 other times, it clearly refers to bodily resurrection. And even amillennialists take come to life here. Now, it's real interesting. When you read books by amillennialists, man, they go on and on and on and on explaining why this doesn't mean what it looks like, what it actually means. And that's always a big problem to me. And by the way, I try to be careful with that myself. We all have to be careful with that because you have a view and you run across something that goes against your view and to me, if you have to work too hard to prove how that fits in with your view, maybe you need to change your view. Um, we can all be guilty of that, but, but with amillennialists, especially in passages like this, they'll even make statements sometimes like, you know, if you were just to read this, you know, for face value, it seems to be referring to physical resurrection, but let me tell you why it doesn't mean what it looks like it actually means. And when someone tells me that about anything in the Bible, the, the alarms start going off and the red flags start going up. So if you just read this here, these people are coming to life physically. They're being resurrected. It points to the end of the age. And then they're reigning with Christ a thousand years, which looks at and again supports this idea of, of the premillennial uh, viewpoint here. So that's the R. So the P is the promises of God, these Old Testament promises that have not been fulfilled, that have to be literally fulfilled, and they'll be fulfilled, I believe, in that coming messianic age in the future. Then we have this resurrection here. If it's a physical resurrection. If that's true, then premillennialism uh, is the only option. Now, the E here in our acronym is that premillennialism is the earliest view. Now, I mentioned this last time, but they weren't called premillennialists in the early church because the word millennium is a Latin word, and they spoke Greek in the early church. So that was the lingua franca of the day, the language of, of commerce. So they were called kiliasts because the Greek word for 1,000 is kilias, kilias. So in the early church, people who believed in a literal thousand-year return of Jesus after he came back were called kiliasts. And this was the view of the early church. And again, when you read books by amillennialists, they try to get around this, but 
they, they do it with a, with a, it's very cumbersome for them to do that. And I'll just share some things. I'll just read you what people say. Um, the earliest person that we know that was Achilleast after the apostles was a man named Papias. Now, you notice Papias was born in A.D. 60, and he died in A.D. Uh, uh, 130. And we, we don't have writings of Papias. We just have fragments of his writings. But he was the bishop of Hierapolis. I've been to Hierapolis. It's near Laodicea, near Colossae. It's down in the, the Lycus Valley there in, in modern-day Turkey. But he wrote these five books called Expositions of Oracles of the Lord. And all we have is fragments of that. But later on, a man named Irenaeus, and we'll talk about him in a moment, but Irenaeus was the greatest theologian probably in the church of the second century and wrote a famous book called Against Heresies, where he was taking on Gnostics and all of that. But Irenaeus said about Papias that he was a hearer of John and a companion of Polycarp. So Irenaeus says this guy Papias knew John. He used to listen to John teach, and he was also a companion of Polycarp, who was uh, martyred in the early church, but uh, who, who died in like 155 A.D. Now, again, I'm throwing a lot of names at you here, and hopefully we can keep these straight. But Eusebius, the guy I've got mentioned here, Eusebius was around in uh, the 300s A.D., and he hated Kiliasts. He didn't like the view of a literal thousand-year reign in the future. But speaking about Papias, Eusebius said this, among other things, he says there will be a period of a thousand years after the resurrection of the dead when the kingdom of Christ will be set up in material form on this earth. So Eusebius, who didn't like this view, admitted that that's the view that Papias held. Now, to me, this is significant because Irenaeus said Papias was a hearer of John, and he was a companion of Polycarp. Now, to me, if Papias was taking a view different than John's view about the thousand-year reign of Christ, you some, you'd think somewhere Papias would have said, oh, by the way, I'm disagreeing with John on this, you know. But he just states this view that he believes in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ after the resurrection of the dead. To me, it's compelling. And to me, it's the most compelling case there is historically in church history that this man who studied under John and knew him believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus after he returns to the earth. So to me, I would use Papias as kind of exhibit A. Uh, Justin Martyr, um, he lived about 150 A.D. So again, this is only you know, 50 years after John dies. In his book called Dialogue with Trypho, he says, I and every other completely orthodox Christian feel certain there will be a resurrection of the flesh followed by a thousand years in the rebuilt, embellished, and enlarged city of Jerusalem as was announced by the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others. So Justin Martyr doesn't really know even of any other orthodox Christians who don't hold this view in 150. It's like I and every other orthodox Christian that I know this is the view that we hold. And notice, for him, the millennium, it's in an enlarged city of Jerusalem. It's a rebuilt, I mean, the, the Jewish people are there in the land. Um, it, it's going to take place in Jerusalem. So there's a Jewishness to this kingdom that we see in the Old Testament. So that was Justin Martyr. And everybody agrees, you know, that he was a Kiliast. Uh, Tertullian of Carthage lived about A.D. 180. He was a lawyer and a Christian apologist. He was known as the father of Latin Christianity. He's the one that coined the term Trinity. It's the first one to use it anyway, the term Trinity. 
He says, but we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem, let down from heaven. So Tertullian, again, there's other statements by him. He clearly believed in a literal future kingdom, thousand-year kingdom in, uh, in, on the earth. Now, Irenaeus, uh, I love to go back and read Irenaeus, especially he's got, and against heresies, there's several books. Book five, he talks a lot about prophecy. And here's a statement by uh, Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon. He lived over in France. He said this, but when, when this Antichrist, he talks a lot about the Antichrist. He believed he was a future individual that was coming. When this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months. He'll sit down in the temple at Jerusalem. So he believed in a rebuilt temple. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds and the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, talking about the Antichrist, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance. He's saying, look, what God promised to Abraham, what we talked about last week, the Abrahamic covenant, that's going to be fulfilled then that many coming from the east and from the west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Irenaeus believed in a literal antichrist. He believed he was going to rule the world for three and a half years. I mean, he believed he was going to uh, sit in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, a, a third Jewish temple. Then he believed there'd be the second coming of Jesus. Then there'd be a thousand-year reign of Christ uh, upon the earth. Basically the same thing that, uh, that I believe. It's the same uh, basic eschatology. So, you know, again, when people, a lot of people act like today that the view that folks like myself hold is kind of like tabloid Christianity or a bunch of wackos, you're just getting stuff from the headlines or whatever. I mean, you go back and read Irenaeus, he said the same thing we say, basically. Um, Victorinus of Patal. Patal was a uh, modern Slovenia. He died in AD 304. He was martyred by uh, the emperor Diocletian. Um, he authored the oldest surviving commentary on Revelation, and I've read a lot of the parts of that. You can get online and read it. And he held to a literal earthly 1,000-year reign of Christ. So this is the oldest extant or surviving commentary we have on the book of Revelation. He held to a, a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ after his coming. Um, one other man here, Lactantius, he was an advisor to Constantine. He lived in the A.D. 300s. He said, uh, when, when he shall have destroyed injustice, talking about Jesus, and made the great judgment and restored to life those who were just from the beginning, he will stay among men for a thousand years and rule them with a just dominion. Then those who will be living in bodies will not die, but will generate an infinite multitude during those same thousand years. Those who will be raised from the dead will be in charge of the living as judges." Just what we believe, we're going to reign for a thousand years, living people, the, the, the uh, glorified, we come back, we're going to be judges with him. At this same time also, the prince of demons, who is the conniv contriver of all evil, will be found in chains and will be in custody for a thousand years. So Satan's going to be bound for that thousand years, people are going to be living on the earth, Christ is going to rule, he's going to reign. Um, here's a, a final quote here, Philip Schaff, and he's written an epic book years ago, back in the 1800s, I think it was, called History of the Christian Church. And here's kind of his summary of this period of time. He says, the most striking point in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age. Now, 
The Council of Nicaea happened in 325, so the anti-Nicene age was before that. Was the prominent, prominent Kiliasm or millenarianism, that is the belief of a visible reign of Christ and glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas. Now, that's not the Barnabas that was with Paul. This is another man. Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Methodius, and Lactanius. So, Schaff says, you know, one of the prominent things in the early church was this chiliasm or millenarianism. This is, uh, was prominent in the early church and was held by all these well-known people. So again, just because all these people held to this view doesn't mean it has to be the right view, but I do think it's compelling that that many of the uh, church fathers early on held this view. Again, especially Papias who knew John. So this was the earliest view in the church, and I think it was the earliest view for a reason, because I think that's the one that, that they had received from John. Now the M in our acronym, and uh, this one is a simple argument. Uh, this is the most natural reading. To me, it's the most natural reading to say that the thousand years follows the second coming of Jesus. Go back in your Bible to chapter 19, verse 11 of Revelation. And uh, you'll see the words, and I saw. And in Greek, it's kai edan, kai edan. You see it over and over again. I think it's found like 44 times in the book of Revelation. But notice in 1911, he says, and I saw heaven open. Back in, down in 19, verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun. Uh, down in verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Uh, down in chapter 20, verse 1, and I saw an angel. Uh, chapter 20, verse 4, and I saw thrones. Down in verse uh, 11, and I saw a great white throne. Chapter 21, verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So you have John just going through, I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. It seems to me like there's sequence to this or chronological progression as you go through. I saw this, and then I saw this. It's just going in order. And if that's true, then you have the second coming of Jesus, you have the thousand-year reign, you have the revolt of Satan, you have the great white throne judgment, and then you have the new heaven and the new earth and the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. It's just a chronological sequence. Now, what amillennials will say is they say, well, it's not chronological sequence. It's the order in which John saw these things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be in that chronological order. What's interesting is, starting in chapter 19 with the second coming and going through, they put everything else in chronological order except verses 1 to 6. Now, everything else after that follows in chronological order. So that passage, they say, when after the second coming, we're going back to the first coming, this thousand-year period is happening now, then we go to the second coming, and then we go to the, uh, the, the uh, resurrection and the great white throne judgment and all of that. But to me, when I read it, I just think if you gave this to somebody who didn't know much about the Bible and just said, read this, they'd say, it's just telling things as they happen in order. That's the way it seems to flow. And I think that's just the most natural reading of the text. Another point is, at the end of chapter 19, at Armageddon, when Jesus returns at his second coming, the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. So he deals with the beast and the false prophet. And then in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, an angel comes and grabs Satan and throws him into the abyss. 
Now, you know from the book of Revelation that the beast, the false prophet, and Satan are the false trinity, if you will, kind of this uh, demonic trinity. And it seems like that God is dealing with these three members at the same time. So the beast and the false prophet get thrown in the lake of fire, and then Satan gets put into the abyss. So they're all being dealt with at the same time. To me, to say that the beast and the false prophet are dealt with here at the end of verse 20, and then in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, you're going all the way back to the first coming of Jesus, where Satan's being bound there, it makes a lot more sense to me that God is dealing with all three members of that false trinity at the same time. It's at his second coming. He's thrown the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire, and then he comes and gets Satan, and he throws him in the abyss. It's all happening um, in sequence. One other thing, and this is an argument I just heard about or read about recently. Um, you know, that's the thing about studying the Bible. You're, you're learning stuff all the time. Look at verse 4. He says there, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Now, what's interesting there, that word they, there's not a near antecedent to that word. A lot of you know when you've been married for a long time, so a lot of times Cheryl, I'll be driving along, and I've been thinking about something in my mind. I'll just say, you know, he did, you know, you start into some conversation, you go, who are you talking about? You know, who's he or they or whatever? You know, you, you've been thinking about it in your own mind, and you launch into this deal, and, you know, people are kind of wondering, who's the they or the he or whatever? Well, when you come along, and in, in verses 1 to 3, it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. He gets Satan, throws him in the abyss. Um, He's bound for a thousand years. And in verse 4 just says, and I saw thrones and they sat upon them. You say, well, who's they? If you go back in, in the chapters, and you can look at this on your own, the nearest antecedent, and again, when you have a, a, a pronoun like this, like they or he or him, you're trying to think, well, well, who is this, is all the way back in chapter 19 and verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's looking at the people that are coming back with Jesus at his second coming. And that really is the nearest grammatical antecedent to the word they. So it's looking at, I saw thrones and they sat upon them. Now, if that's true, then chapter 20 has to follow right after chapter 19 to have any kind of meaning to who they are. I mean, if you're got the second coming here, and then chapter 20, we're going all the way back to the first coming of Jesus, the they here doesn't mean anything. Now, what millennials and others try to say, they say the they is the people described in the later part of the verse in verse 4, and I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded and so on, but it's odd to use a, a pronoun like that before you describe who you're talking about. So, I think the they there, if it's the people who come back with Jesus, that gives continuity again to this whole passage and, and makes it a more natural reading that this is talking about events that happen after Christ's second coming. Now, to me, one of the most compelling arguments for this premillennial view is the incarceration of Satan. Verse 21 to 3 says, you know, an angel comes and he binds Satan and he puts him in the abyss. And notice verse 3, Satan is thrown into the abyss. And by the way, the abyss throughout Scripture is the prison house for evil spirits. Um, the word is used, I think it's nine times in the New Testament. It's a, uh, the prison house for evil spirits. And Satan is thrown into the abyss. It's sometimes called the shaft of the abyss. 
Some older translations call it the bottomless pit. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Now, amillennialists say that when Christ came at his first coming, that Satan was bound in the sense that he can no longer deceive the nations like he did before. Well, it looks to me like he's still doing a pretty good job of it, you know, when you look at our world today. So to have Satan bound, because they say this thousand years, the millennium, that's, where, that's a spiritual kingdom that we're in now. And Satan has to be bound then during this time because he's bound during this thousand years. It's a big problem for their view. So they say that Satan's power is curtailed and restrained. Now, you know, you go to 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4, and it calls Satan the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. I mean, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, it tells us all about the armor of God. You know, to put on the armor of God, you know, we can stand against uh, the principalities and powers and spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8 says that Satan is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. and literally means to gulp them down. That's a sobering thing to think about. And then I've got this statement here. I know some of you have already read it, but if Satan's bound today, he must have a long chain, you know, people say. But there's another verse in 1 John 5, 19 that says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Literally in the Greek, it's just the whole world lies in the evil one. Now, how can Satan be bound when those kinds of statements are made? To me, the idea that Satan is bound today in the shaft of the abyss, not being able to deceive the nations, is contrary to the way Satan is pictured in the New Testament. And many people have pointed this out. In fact, Wayne Grudem, he's a a well-known theologian, he says, you know, when it says that Satan was bound, he was thrown into the abyss, they shut it and they sealed it over him. He said, how could you say any more clearly if you wanted to that Satan's taken out of the way and out of the picture? There's no way you could say it any more clearly than that. And to say that Satan's power is just curtailed or restrained or that somehow he can't deceive the nations or whatever, to me, that's one of the most difficult points I think they have to make to show how Satan is really bound in that way today. Now, what they'll try to do, and again, I don't want to go through this. You guys can look at this online uh, later if you want to look this up. But they go back to Matthew chapter 12, where remember that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, did say that he was going to bind the strong man, which refers to Satan. But I think what that means in the context is Christ was binding Satan then in the sense that he was coming into Satan's domain and casting out demons and all these kinds of things. If you put Matthew 12, 29, and Christ saying he's going to bind the strong man in Revelation 20 side by side, in Matthew 12, 29, Christ binds Satan. Here it's an angel who binds him. In Matthew 12, 29, Satan was bound so that Christ could plunder his house by casting out demons, whereas in Revelation 20, it's to prevent Satan from deceiving the world. In Matthew 12, 29, Satan was bound within his own house or within his own domain Whereas in Revelation 20, he's removed from his domain, cast into the abyss, it's shut over him and sealed. So these, these two passages aren't talking about the same thing. 
And to me, to say that in any way that Satan's power, you know, other than, than, than the fact that God's omnipotent overall, but that Satan's power today is somehow more curtailed or limited or he can't deceive the nations today, you can go through the New Testament and list probably 20 or 30 statements about what Satan is doing today. You know, his deception, he, you know, disguises himself as an angel of light. You know, Paul in, second, in 1 Thessalonians 2 says, you know, we wanted to come see you, but Satan thwarted us or hindered us. Just on and on and on you can go. So to me, to have any thought that Satan is down in the shaft of the abyss, bound there, sealed over him, it's shut over him, to me, to say that that's happening today um, is, a, a, is a massive stretch, to put it mildly. <laughs> now, the final point for premillennialism for me is that the thousand years here are literal. So again, if you're uh, amillennialist or postmillennialist, a thousand years is this current age, so it's not a literal thousand years. And of course, you know, they always like to say, you know, a thousand years, it's just kind of a big round number, so, you know, surely this isn't meant to be taken literally. You know, six times, though, in seven verses, you have a thousand years. So, I mean, it's repeated over and over and over again. If it's something symbolic, you wouldn't think it'd be repeated that many times. Also, I believe time periods repeated over and over again in Revelation are literal. You have time times and half a time, 42 months and 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. All three of those are, are, are equal, but they're repeated over and over again. And I believe it's a literal period of time. One other point, and I've mentioned this here I know before, but maybe if some of you haven't heard this, this is really uh, interesting. If you look at verse uh, 3, if you look at verse 3, this is, this is a, a very uh, fascinating point, I think. It says, notice um, Satan is sealed there, the end of verse 3, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So notice here you have a non-specific statement, a short time, right there with a specific statement of a thousand years. So if a thousand years is just a long time, why didn't he say he's going to be bound a long time and then be released a short time? Or he's going to be bound a thousand years and released ten years or something like that. But the fact you have a thousand years, which is a specific time, with a short time, argues to me that the thousand years is to be taken literally. And when you go down to verse 8, he's talking about the number of those who rebel against God, and he says the number of them was like the sand on the seashore. Well, obviously, that's a symbolic statement of this. There's going to be a lot of them, right? So you have these nonspecific statements like the sand on the seashore and a short time in the same context where you have a literal number of a thousand years. So, John could have just said he's going to be bound a long time, he's going to be released a short time, and that would have solved the problem right there. But this specific statement here with these nonspecific ones, I think to me it's compelling. Now, people always ask about this, and this is one of the arguments. uh, Hank Hanegraaff is a well-known amillennialist, although he he won't say he's an amillennialist, but that's the view he holds. they always bring this up back in Psalm 50 and verse 10. They'll say other places in the Bible, the number 1,000 is used symbolically. So they take that and import that into Revelation 20 and say it's used symbolically as well. 
which, by the way, that's not a good way to do Bible interpretation. You want to look at a, pass- a, 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 a passage, see how it's using things itself, and not just automatically import something from somewhere else. But in Psalm 50, verse 10, God says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And almost all amillennialists that you read, they'll always say, well, does the Lord not own the cattle on the thousand and first hill? You know, obviously this is symbolic, you know, the thousand hills. Um, And so since thousand is used here symbolically, then it's symbolic over in Revelation. But it's such a simple point, and it, it kind of boggles my mind that, you know, good Bible scholars and teachers can't figure this out. There's something in the Psalms called parallelism. You see it everywhere in the Psalms where the psalmist says something and then says the same thing. It's called synonymous parallelism. Or sometimes it's called antithetical parallelism. You say something and then you say the opposite of it right after it. But most common, it's called synonymous parallelism. There's a statement and then there's another statement after it. You see it over and over again in the Psalms. It's used all the time. And that's what you have here in verse 10. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. He's just repeating that every beast of the forest is mine, and the, every, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills is just repeating that statement in a synonymous way, but just a different way. So he's just saying, I own everything, all the beasts on the earth is simply what he's saying. So it's clear in this passage that the, the, the thousand here is not to be taken literally. It's being used in a poetic way. When you get over to Revelation 20, there's no evidence in that chapter that 1,000 is being used poetically or in any other way other than literally. It's repeated six times. In fact, it's used uh, there with uh, a, a nonspecific statement. So that's the L in the acronym here that we have. So I'm a premillennialist, and I'm sticking to it. So these are my reasons for it. So one little final deal here I've got is just, you know, the, you want to make it even simpler for my idea. The chronology of the passage, to me, just the thousand years, the context of it, just how it flows, the Old Testament covenants that have to be fulfilled someday, and church history. To me, those are, are points that support this view. I mentioned one thing last time. I want to just repeat this here at the end, and then we'll close. Um, One thing I said last time, this is a theological argument, but without a literal millennial reign um, under the reign of Christ, I don't think God's purpose for this world will ever be realized. You know, if the first Adam failed and and took the world into sin and, and God wanted him to take dominion over the earth and he failed, and Jesus is the last Adam who will come and fulfill on this earth what the last Adam failed to do. And if Christ just comes back at His second coming, we go right into the new heaven and new earth, and there's no reign of Christ on the earth, then I think God's purpose for this world will have been thwarted by Satan. And I want to read a couple of quotes, real simple ones, that that make that point. Uh, Dr. Pentecost said this years ago, God's purpose for the earth would be unrealized, and the problem generated by Satan's rebellion would never be resolved. Thus, the physical, literal reign of Christ on the earth is a theological and biblical necessity unless Satan is victorious over God. And then James Boyce says this, To my mind, the best ultimate reason why there must be a literal millennium is that only in a literal millennium do we have a meaningful culmination of world history. 
There's a meaningful culmination of history. It's all going to culminate there when the last Adam comes and rules the earth and takes dominion that the first Adam was supposed to do. Um, I'll close with this story. Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, the famous composer, he often slept more than he should. You know, a lot of geniuses are like that. He'd sleep a lot, and his kids had a way to wake him up. They'd go over to the piano, and they'd begin to play a composition, and when they would get to the last note, they would stop, and they wouldn't play the last note. And it worked like a charm. It would always get him up. He couldn't stand to have that last note hanging out there in the air. And so he'd come over there and he'd play that last note. I mean, being a musical genius, it just drove him crazy. He couldn't sleep anymore. And the person that's told this story says, in the same way today, we're waiting for the last note on the final page of God's song of victory. God will will not leave his grand composition without striking the final note. And that final note is the messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ. So there's a a note that's kind of hanging out there and it will be struck when Jesus comes again and rules and reigns on the earth. And uh, my prayer every day is that he'll come soon. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have of a coming Savior. We thank you that you won't leave your grand composition hanging there without striking the final note. And that we have the hope that Jesus is coming again. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. Father, I thank you that we will rule and we will reign with him forever and ever. We pray that he will come soon. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. Well, next time we'll look at the rapture. And uh, I'll talk a lot about just different views of that and the timing. So anyway, I think it'll be something that uh, will be enlightening for some things you probably haven't heard before.